Thank you. Good morning. Um, have you, if you recognize Tim Etherington, you'll notice I'm not him. Tim is uh, not here today. Uh, as uh, Paul said, they're uh, celebrating the uh, graduation of their uh, daughter. Um, I'd like to go ahead and dismiss uh, the children to uh, Children's Church at this time, um, less and more appropriate to their age, and um, probably more goldfish crackers than we're going to get in here. Uh, have you noticed the weather? I mean, the weather's been wonderful these last couple days. Uh, really, really pleasant. Uh, according to prediction, next Sunday it's going to be like 30 degrees warmer. It's going to be hot, almost 100 degrees, not hitting that. So if you want to do me a favor, just next week mention to Tim, you go, when Dan preached it was cooler. Uh, <laughs> do what you want. I'm not going to force you. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer and uh, get into the message. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, as we look at what uh, Jesus did in uh, the uh, closing days of his earthly ministry, that uh, we can have a better understanding of who you are, who Jesus is, and just how um, you view us and how you view our sin and the seriousness of that. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going through the book of Luke uh, Tim uh, graciously uh, let me just keep going in his series. Last week, uh, he talked about the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday. And uh, we, we saw him enter the city as the king claiming the, uh, the city. What we saw in the parallel passage in Mark uh, a few uh, weeks ago was once he got to the city, he looked around the temple and then he left and went, uh, uh, went back to Bethany to spend the night. Uh, so this is the next morning. The story we're seeing here in chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, is the next day. He's walking back towards Jerusalem from Bethlehem, or from Bethany, excuse me. He sees the city, and he starts to weep. Uh, if, if you are of my age, <laughs> you may remember back in the 1970s, there was a public service announcement commercial with uh, the, uh, the great American Indian, Iron Eyes Cody, uh, dressed in TV-appropriate Indian garb, uh, standing and looking out over a field covered in litter. And he's stoically looking out there, and one perfect tear rolls down his cheek, showing how heartbroken he is at the litter. This story is nothing like that. This is not a quiet sob. This is not a single perfectly formed tear running down his cheek. He is weeping and he is wailing. The word in Greek is kaleo, which means to mourn, to weep, to lament. The descriptions are weeping at the sign of pain and grief or weeping uh, of those who mourn for the dead. If you've seen people in this culture wailing for the dead. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is, he's brokenhearted over Jerusalem. It's not a quiet message. He's crying out. He's yelling this in, in tears. 
Uh, he is mourning the nation of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who's failed to recognize their salvation. They have had the greatest opportunity in history and they've missed that opportunity. God's held out the offer of peace and fellowship uh, to the people of God for so long. He's offered to make them a nation of priests. But now that time has ended and Jesus knows that. That time's over. In many of the parables that we've seen in Luke, Jesus tells of God calling Israel to himself and them ignoring him. In Luke chapter 14 was the feast of the rich man where he lays out this beautiful feast and invites all his friends, all his favored people to it. And they all tell him, I'm too busy. I don't care. I'm not going to show up. And he sends a message out to those in the, in the roads. But they ignored him. They ignored his feast. The call's always been there. But the people have ignored it. And now they are deaf to it. It's being hidden. It's being taken away from them. It's no longer, this is no longer an offer on the table. They're going to have to, uh, to go on without knowing uh, their savior. I'd like you to turn over to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Jesus, earlier on in his ministry, is lamenting over Jerusalem. This is uh, after the seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. But in Matthew 23 and 37 through 39, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've lost the opportunity. Um, here, you go back to Luke, but... Uh, uh, he says uh, um, that uh, uh, had you known, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He said, you should, have, you should have known, you should have recognized the things that make for peace. You, when you're at war, you recognize an overture of peace. And here he's saying, you, you've completely missed it. You've completely uh, blown that opportunity. Um, what is the things that make for peace in this case? That's been Christ's message from the beginning. His, uh, he's offering a restoration with God. Uh, repent, obey God. That has always been the way to peace. You've always had this opportunity. Repent of your sins, be obedient to God, and follow his ways. And you will have peace. Jesus is offering a way to have that peace in his, in his sacrifice. Um, God doesn't change his message to become relevant. God always is relevant. We just keep changing the question. But his message has always been the same. Christ tells Israel that the way to peace is now hidden from them. Uh, I'm going to make you Flip through your Bible one more time. 
Uh, go to John chapter 12, 38 through 40. John is quoting Isaiah. So this is centuries before Jesus. And Jesus quotes him starting in verse 38. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Even in the time of Isaiah, God is saying, I'm going to hide this from your eyes eventually. It's predicted. Isaiah prophesied this, and, and Jesus is saying that, that prophecy is happening right now. That happens right now today. Their rejection ends up becoming a confirmation of God's word being fulfilled. God said, you're going to reject me. And that's, right here is the prophecy, is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They reject him. It's sad when you look at it, you say, this is no longer something they can pursue. This, you know, as you say in business, this option's off the table. We're not, we're not going to deal with this here anymore. You have no more opportunities. Uh, it's hidden. It's not something that they can search for, that they can discover on their own. Their, their hearts are stilled. The call no longer resonates in them. How sad. Their, their heart is stilled. There's no longer that desire for God. It, it's gone completely. Their longed-for Messiah. Israel has been longing for, for the Messiah for, for centuries, for, for over a millennia. And he's standing right there before them, and they don't see him. They don't recognize their salvation when he appears to them. We come to verses 43 and 44, and um, uh, the days will come upon you. So he is, Jesus is prophesying here. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Uh, he's talked about the past. There's this prophecy in the past, and it's being fulfilled today, so it's the present. And now he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Um, it's, it's interesting. We, we talk about prophecy and understand that when, when God speaks in prophecy, it's not it's not what God hopes for. It's a proclamation. God's not saying, I hope this happens. I hope things work out this way. God's saying, this is what is going to happen. This is exactly how it's going to happen. It is a proclamation of a fact that hasn't happened yet. So when he says this, he's saying, it's inevitable. It's coming. Um, so on, uh, so we've been doing church history in Sunday school. So I'm like really into dates right now. <laughs> so April 9th, 70 AD, the Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem, cutting off all supplies coming in to the city. He's trapping thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem who had come for Passover. So there were people in Jerusalem who didn't live there, who were just there for Passover when the siege by General Titus takes place. The Romans built embankments around the city. 
Go back and look at verse 43 and 44 while I'm talking. He's building embankments around the city, and that ends up starving the people out, and they start pressing in, and they, over the summer, they slowly conquer various sections, working towards the center of the city. The city falls completely in September of 70 AD. The Romans kill tens of thousands of men, women, and children, and anybody left was carried off into captivity as slaves. The temple was completely and entirely destroyed. Literally, not one stone was on top of another. And we've talked before about the story. They burned the city. They burned the temple. There were, you know, great cedars of Lebanon and things like that. There was flammable material. That burned, and what happened is the gold that was on the, on the city, on the temple, melted and ran down into the cracks of the stone. So the Roman soldiers who were pillaging the city pried the stones apart to get the gold out that had melted down between the stones. So... They're, they're motivated to not leave one stone on top of another stone out of their greed of taking the gold. And that is why, literally, there is not one stone on top of another uh, after, um, after the fall of Jerusalem. Why is this happening? What is so great a sin that God would allow this to happen to Israel? In our Thursday night Bible study, we're going through Isaiah. Had to get a plug in for our Bible study. Um, God allows Israel and Judah to be conquered and the people to be carried away. And they're carried off into captivity by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Just this week, we were talking about it's not just that they live their lives in sin. It's not that they live their life, not only because they live their life in disobedience, but because they live their life in total disregard of God. To, to look at God's law and recognize God's law and say, I need to obey God's law, but I don't want to, is one thing. The other to say, God is not important. I don't care what he says. I'm ignoring him. I don't regard him as worthy of me following him. That's why God's angered at them. They ignored the presence of the Lord among them. God was among his people, and he removed that by sending them into captivity. By the time of Jesus, they hadn't changed. They were still that same type of people that disregarded God. There was disobedience, but in that disobedience was a disregard, was an ignoring of God. They ignored the presence of God. They didn't recognize their Messiah among them. How sad is that? For, ye for centuries, they've been looking for the Messiah. He's standing right here. He's talking to you. He's teaching you. You can see him. You can touch him. But you ignore him. You don't recognize him. He is literally walking among you. And say, I don't care. Who they desired was the man who fed them. Who they desired was the man who healed them. Who they desired was the man who spoke an inspirational message that warmed all their hearts. 
But they turned away from God, who's calling them to repent of their sin and follow him. They weren't willing to make that step. They weren't willing to say, God is worthy of my worshiping him. They wanted fellowship with God, but they wanted fellowship on their own terms. Otherwise, they're just going to look someplace else for their Messiah. They didn't want the Messiah who was truly here. They wanted their own idea of a Messiah that was more comfortable for them, which was not convicting to them. And that's, that's so, so sad. In, um, in verses 45 and 46, Jesus comes into the temple and he drives out those who are selling there. This is possibly happening in the court of Gentiles, which would be uh, an easy access because everyone would have access to that. But that takes away the only place to worship for a faithful Gentile. The faithful Gentiles can't come into the court of the Gentiles to worship God, to fellowship with God, because it's taken up with money changers and vendors selling um, animals for the sacrifices. Um, so for the Gentile worship, imagine coming in here and we're worshiping and there's baseball peanut vendors running back and forth through the sanctuary, yelling and throwing bags of peanuts. Imagine trying to worship in that atmosphere. That, that would be what would be happening in the court of, of Gentiles. And Matthew's account, it says, Jesus drove out the money changers and those who were selling pigeons. They were overturning their tables and overturning their seats. So, so he, was, he was busting the place up. He was driving them out of the temple. Now, money changers uh, were there. It was required to give a temple tax of half a shekel. The, uh, the problem that arose is the shekel was not an official currency of the Roman Empire. So people would come into Jerusalem and they would have um, uh, Greek or Roman money in their, in their bag, in their money bag. And, uh, and that was not acceptable for the temple tax. So you would have to bring your money to a, a, a money exchange. I mean, you, you see currency exchanges in the airport. Uh, same thing. You would exchange your money for shekels so you could pay the, the, uh, the shekel, uh, the, the temple tax. The corruption that's going on here is that they would charge a fee. If you've ever done currency exchange when you've traveled internationally, it's called the exchange rate. And so how much, how much of this money can you get for your U.S. dollar? And there's, there's a little bit of room in there, so the person doing the, the business of currency exchange can, can make money for his business. That's not necessarily wrong, but what's happening here is a portion of that fee went to the family of the chief priest. So if you're changing money, you're going to charge a fee and a portion of that fee gets kicked back to the chief priest and his family. 
Literally, the chief priest is renting out the temple of God like stalls in a flea market. You have to pay to play. Same with the uh, sellers of uh, sacrificial animals. They would obviously pay a portion of what they got back to the chief priests. Um, and they provided the animals that were used in the sacrifice. You could certainly bring your own animal to, to sacrifice. Um, but the, the danger is you're traveling a long way. You have to take care of that animal. And that animal needs to arrive without blemish. Now, you, you may have an animal that starts out without blemish, but, you know, so you're bringing a goat, and it, it scratches itself on a tree and gouges open a scar. It's no longer without blemish. It breaks its leg. It's no longer without blemish. You're carrying pigeons in a cage. The pigeon flaps its wing and breaks its wing inside the cage. It's no longer without blemish. Or maybe you just didn't look good enough and the animal was born with a blemish, with a defect, and the animal is not acceptable for sacrifice. You would show up, there was people selling animals, and those animals had already been inspected by the priests. They would look at them and say, this animal is without blemish and able to be sacrificed. So you can offer it for sale, and you purchase this knowing that it is acceptable for sacrifice. Kind of like a money-back guarantee on a used car or something. So they, they provided an, a necessary service. Um, so it wasn't necessarily wrong to provide these services. It wasn't necessarily wrong for them to make a living at providing this service. Where they set up shop was a problem. They are inside the temple. They're inside an area that's supposed to be holy, and they're conducting business. And you don't conduct business in the temple of the Most High God. There's also the, the financial arrangement with the priests. That's a defilement. It's outlined in the law how the priests and their families are to be taken care of. Through the temple tax, through the sacrifices, these were the ways that the serving priests could be taken care of. But now they've just taken and made the temple a money-making opportunity for something over and above what God has prescribed for, for, those, uh, for those who serve in the temple. Um, so that was the defilement that's going on. Is business going on in the in, on the temple grounds, and the, the chief priest and his family receiving income from that business that's going on. Now, the Gospel of John records an earlier cleansing of the temple of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Um, I kind of see it, Jesus was clearing the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and that was a warning. This at the Towards the end of his earthly ministry, this is the judgment. First time through, I'm warning you, don't do this. He comes back, and they, they've gone back to doing the same business, and now this is judgment on them. He's judged the nation. He's judged Jerusalem. These things are hidden. Peace is no longer offered to you. Now we're clearing out the temple. Jesus is angry. 
This isn't just, oh, come on, guys, move along, move along. He's angry. It says he, he had ropes and he's, he's flailing to drive them out of the temple. He's angered at what they are doing. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Then he goes on to say, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's furious with them. They're disregarding God, even in his own house. The nation has disregarded the Messiah. And they're being judged for that. The city of Jerusalem, the heart of Israel, disregards the Messiah. And they're being judged for that. And they're standing in the very house of God and disregarding him. And they're being judged for that. This is a place built to worship God, and they're ignoring God, who they should be there to worship. They've completely removed worship of God and turned it into a business, into a den of robbers. In, um, in verse 47, says Jesus was teaching every day in the temple. He's out in the open. He's not hiding someplace. He's not doing a podcast from a secret undisclosed location. He's standing in the temple, possibly in this very court that he's just cleared out, teaching every single day. It's interesting, in verse 47, it talks about the chief priests, the scribes, and the, as ESV says, the principal men of the people. Uh, another translation may say elders or, or something like that. Um, and these are the people who are trying to find a way to discredit Jesus. They want to discredit him so no one would listen to him. If you say, this person's not worth listening to, he's lying, he's, whatever he says is wrong, uh, he's a bad person, uh, people stop listening. You, you remove that person's authority to be listened to. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to find a way to discredit him, to, to challenge his authority. Failing that, they're looking for any way they can silence him. They will go to any length to silence Jesus because he's a threat. Now, we've heard about the chief priests. We've heard about the scribes. They're not mentioned here, but we've, we've heard about the Pharisees. But except for chapter 9, this is the only time, really, where we see the elders or the um, um, principal men of the people being mentioned. Um, these, were, these were business leaders. These were prominent people in the community. Uh, not necessarily uh, religious people, um, you know, religious as, as a calling or vocation, uh, such as the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, the, um, and the chief priests. They were, they were business leaders in the, in the community. Uh, one, of, um, one thought that I read out of one commentary um, 
is that um, uh, this widens the circle. This widens the circle of those who are responsible for Jesus' death. This is important that it's not just the chief priest and a couple other guys who have conspired to kill Jesus. This is the nation of Israel is crucifying their Messiah. Because that's what's prophesied. Jesus knew this going in. This is what's prophesied. Is they are going to reject him. That's why he's crying. That's why he's wailing when he comes in because he knows they're going to reject him. That's why he's angry in the temple clearing out the money changers and the vendors. He's angry at their sin. By saying that these leaders of the men or leaders of the community are involved in this conspiracy to try to get rid of Jesus is placing the blame openly on all the people. So we can't point and say they were the ones who did this. It's not somebody else. It's not somebody else's sin that hangs Jesus on the cross. It's mine. I can't blame someone else for that happening. I can't blame someone else for that happening and then take the benefit of it because it is my sin, my guilt. We all hate to admit it, but if we lived in Jerusalem at this time, we would be just like them. The rejection of the Messiah isn't just the chief priest and a few of their followers. The truth is hidden from the people and they become the ones who call for Jesus' death. They're the ones who are going to yell out, crucify him. And then this makes it all of their sin. Certainly the chief priests and the scribes wanted Jesus, uh, Jesus silenced. But these principal men being mentioned brings in more reasons. Jesus was messing with their money. He's messing with their business. Business was affected, and those elders in the community didn't want their income impacted. Jesus is going to ruin our business. Chief priest is going, look, I'm selling you these stalls. And they're saying, I'm not paying you anything if this guy keeps coming in and, and driving me out. So now the chief priest doesn't have that extra money coming in. He can't make his boat payment. They don't want their income damaged. They all had an interest in maintaining the status quo, even when the status quo is wicked. It's just, it's just appalling to think that we're going to do this. We're going to openly defile God's house. And we get angry at those who try to stop us because they mess with our money. They mess with our income. That turns into rejection, rejection of Christ, rejection of Jesus. And it turns that rejection away from just being a religious disagreement or even a political fight. You know, yes, he rode into the city, but then he didn't overthrow the Romans. So, so he can't be the Messiah I wanted because he didn't do what I wanted and throw off Rome. 
It goes beyond that. Everyone's affected. Everyone is affected by their greed in this case. It's a base sin. So the religious establishment, the lawyers, scribes are lawyers, and the business leaders, so you have religious sort of government and business, and they all want to destroy them. The problem is they don't have a good reason. They don't have that one great reason to kill Jesus. We're going to see later they're going to challenge his authority and they're going to, they're going to fail horribly. It's going to be embarrassing to be them <laughs> on those days. For all their power, and these were all very powerful men in Jerusalem in all areas, they're faced with the problem that right now Jesus is really popular with the people. The people love him right now. It seems the leaders were out of step with the people they were supposed to be leading. They wanted something different than what the people did. Um, remember, this is, this is the day after Jesus rode into the city to, to yells of Hosanna. The people loved him. So there's nothing they can do right now. They can't just walk into the court and with the temple guards and grab Jesus and drag him away out of the court. The people would kill them. The people would riot. They don't have that much authority. They don't have that much power. They don't have the ability to do that without suffering pretty severe consequences on themselves. So they're finally going to resort to arresting him in the dead of night when no one's around to see him. They're going to hold a mockery of a trial in that same dark night to condemn him. And then they're going to go out and they're going to talk to the people and they're going to convince them to stand in the court and yell, crucify him. And it will be all of Jerusalem will be condemning him. But right now, they're hanging on every word. And, and that is a wonderful thing. When we look at this story, it's this, this short little narrative of the actions of Jesus. Um, I, I think the takeaway, what we see here is sin breaks God's heart. Don't look at it as an offense. Don't look at it as you bumped into somebody and went, excuse me. This is horrible. And it breaks God's heart. The pain of sin is shown here. Both in Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and his clearing of the temple. Jesus is, is heartbroken at sin and he's angered at sin. God wants fellowship with man. That's what he created us for. But man's sin is so great that it prevents that. And, and that hurts God greatly. Do you realize how deeply our offense of sin is to God? He weeps over our rejection, not because his feelings are hurt, but because he knows how our separation from him will lead to our destruction. 
Jesus weeps because he's watching his people kill themselves. Spiritually, we're smoking a pack a day. And he can't make you quit. <laughs> he's angry when we ignore him, when we dirty his holy places, not because he's hurt that we don't like him, but because he's holy and because he's worthy of all honor and all glory, and we don't offer that. The outrage of our appalling disrespect is overwhelming. It is Jerusalem happening right here, right now in this passage. But I can't look at this passage and not say, this is my sin as well. These, these are our sins. We disrespect God. We ignore God. And that... that causes him to weep when he sees our destruction. It requires a response from God. What his response is, is I have a way. There is salvation. I can carry you away from this. I can, I can enliven your heart. Yeah, I just made up a new word. Enliven your heart. Bring your heart to life in such a way that it's Jumping out of your chest with awareness of God. I want, I, I can give you the Holy Spirit that you want nothing more than to be in fellowship with God, to be in God's holy places, to be with Him. What is our response to God's, to Christ's pure and holy weeping? What is our response to His righteous anger? Do we look to kill him? Do we look to push him out of our lives? Do we ignore him so we don't have to face him? Or do you love him? Do you adore him? Do you call him your savior? And do you call him your Lord? Those are, those are the two that are before us when we see the reaction of Jesus to sin. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It's, it's overwhelming to see your son heartbroken and angered and emotional about our sin. And just a realization, give us that realization and open our eyes to, to how foul our sin is to you. But also that you've so wonderfully given us a, a way to repent and a way to have our sins forgiven and cleansed from us and restore our fellowship with you. Thank you for that love that you love us that much. You love us enough to be crying. You love us enough to be angry at our sin, and you love us enough to want to save us away from that horrible sin. Be with us, abide with us, that we can fellowship with you. Amen. as Dan did in the service today, asked us what would we be doing on that day.
It's easy to think, oh, no, I wouldn't be rejecting Jesus. I'd be one of his followers. 